Good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to the 67th live episode of Ask Abhijit. And thank you all for being here. You know, it's a privilege to get even five seconds of someone's attention. And I'm getting so much of all of your attention. It's I'm truly blessed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here and asking me all the questions. I am getting literally thousands of questions per week. So please don't hate me if I can't pick your question. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pick up a wide range of questions that will uh, be informative, hopefully, to everybody over a long period of time. So that's what I'm trying to do. So if I don't pick your question, do not be discouraged, do not be disappointed. Uh, it's possible I may have already answered the question in the past. Uh, I see many people asking me questions that I have answered in the past. I have lots of short clips on this channel. Please go to the search button on my channel and search for whatever question you have. Quite likely, I mean, I, have, I must have answered over a thousand questions by now. It's likely that I may already have answered your question. So look there. And otherwise, keep asking your questions and I will try and pick as many as possible. So today, as you know, I am going to answer questions that I've picked from the uh, comments that you have, uh, the questions you have asked in the comments. And I'll hopefully answer about 30 or so questions. So let us get going right away into your questions. Right. Question one. This is by Vinu. Why have, <laughs> why have all eminent strategic affairs experts rebranded themselves as geopolitical analysts after your first podcast, April 2021, with Ranveer Alabadia? The word geopolitics did not exist anywhere in Indian discourse beyond, before your April podcast. I think everyone is listening to your podcast, listening to your podcasts and quietly learning. You're very influential. You know, um, you, we should all learn from each other. I'm not sure about what you're saying, but uh, I do remember in the recent past that all uh, all these experts were called strategic ex uh, affairs experts, for sure, yes. And uh, recently, it does seem to be that they are now all called geopolitical analysts and experts. I'm not sure if it's a consequence of what uh, of the podcast I did with Ranveer and the other podcast I have done on my own channel over here. But in case it is so, then great. I have no objection to that. Everybody should learn from each other. And uh, if you're watching, hello, hi, everybody. <laughs> what else can I say? Great. I, I'm, I'm very happy about it. Okay. Question two. It's by Dimitri. Currently, the Indian Air Force lacks strategic bombers, despite being the fourth largest air force. And... The top three air forces in the world have strategic bombers for several decades. My question is, does India need any kind of strategic bombers? Okay, so the question is interesting. So the first thing is, what is a strategic bomber? A strategic bomber is a large aircraft that has a range of at least 5,000 kilometers and it can, the range can extend up to 15,000 or more kilometers. So it's a medium to long range aircraft, minimum 5,000 kilometers, I would say. And it, it should be able to carry at least 10,000 kilos of explosives, of bombs that it can drop. So that's what we mean by a strategic bomber. The Americans have a number of strategic bombers. The Russians have been developing and using strategic bombers for a long time. The Chinese have at least one strategic bomber and they are developing at least one more. Uh, if you have heard of the, the stealth bomber that the Americans have, that's a strategic bomber. It's a, it's go, it's a long distance, long endurance aircraft. So three countries 
have the this capability the us the russians and the chinese and the question is does india need any kind of strategic bombers it all depends why does a country need strategic bombers when it has a large area of geopolitical interest when it wants to project power over a large a geographical area that's when you need strategic bombers so that you can uh, potentially possibly if required go and bomb someone far away right so what kind of country needs this a country that is a great power small powers regional powers medium powers don't really need strategic bombers because their area of geopolitical influence typically doesn't extend very far beyond their geographical beyond their political borders but a country that is a superpower a great power or an aspiring great power needs strategic bombers in order to give itself more options military options because the military option is an important in in fact a vital component of a nation's hard power so does india need strategic bombers well the question is does india want to be a great power if india does aspire to be a great power a superpower then at some point in time in the near future india should acquire or build strategic bombers if india is content to be a small power or a regional power then india doesn't need strategic bombers what india does right now is it it employs multi role fighter aircraft as bombers for instance the jaguar the sukhoi various uh, mig aircraft these are currently and uh, also the rafal aircraft so these are multi purpose aircraft with a significant load carrying capacity these are fighter aircraft okay and these are the aircraft that india uses for bombing purposes we cannot uh, do this very far beyond our geographical beyond our political borders because these aircraft they don't have 5000 or more kilometer range the sukhoi has a good range and it can launch missiles and such but it cannot launch 10000 plus kilograms of bombs right that sort of thing so as of today india is a regional power at best because it doesn't have the capability to do what strategic bombers can do we do have missiles and all that but those are for other purposes those are for deterrence purposes mainly so if in the, the this answer is simple if india aspires to be a great power a superpower then it definitely will need strategic bombers we will either have to acquire it from another country or build our own so that's the two options we have but i i would say that india should aspire to be a great power a superpower and therefore india should acquire strategic bombers dimitri again Russia is pitching its Sukhoi 75 fighter jet to India and to other countries chances are that it will also compete in the for the 114 uh, uh medium role multi role fighter jet aircraft program but considering the price and technology they're claiming to offer it's is it really stealthy and a good fighter aircraft and do you see chances of India purchasing it so i haven't examined the sukhoi 75 in great detail it seems to have a certain amount a certain level of stealth capabilities it's not a proper stealth aircraft it's not invisible to radar but it does have a smaller cross section than the sukhoi 30 or the sukhoi 35 uh, those families of aircraft so it does it it is in some senses a 
to some extent a stealth aircraft it's uh, they are saying it's a fourth or fifth generation i think most likely a fourth generation aircraft maybe fifth i'm not sure but it's not a complete stealth aircraft the technology i'm sure the sukhoi uh, aircraft family is excellent no doubt about that uh, so should india acquire this aircraft it depends we need to evaluate the aircraft i think it's a single engine is it a single engine aircraft most likely a single engine aircraft and most likely a single seater single pilot aircraft does india need that or do we need double engine double pilot two pilot aircrafts that is something the air force has to decide most likely we would need a, an aircraft that has a which has a greater uh, an aircraft which would have two engines and maybe a two seater because that allows the pilots to uh, share their responsibilities so uh, the the sukhoi family is is a great family of aircraft no doubt about that but does this specific aircraft fit india's requirements and the bigger question is should we keep on buying uh military hardware from other countries or should we develop our own hardware should we develop our own fighter aircraft i think it is always best to have your own indigenous technology your indigenous aircraft so india is developing a newer variant of the lca tejas aircraft right a, a better variant of the tejas india is developing most likely hopefully a twin engine deck based fighter which will operate from aircraft carriers india is developing the amca the fifth gen the fourth generation aircraft or fighter aircraft which will have multiple roles and it will have elements of stealth as well so i think india should concentrate and focus all its energies and resources on those programs hopefully in the next 10 years we will have these aircraft flying for our air force so in the meanwhile if there is a gap if there is a gap in capabilities if there is a gap in the number of aircraft we need to have we would like to have then as a stop gap measure we can acquire a number of aircraft from abroad we are acquiring some rafale aircraft 36 or maybe more later uh i've heard that we may be acquiring a few more sukhoi 30 aircraft sukhoi 30 mki aircraft so that may work for for a time for for the time being and maybe we will still go ahead with these with this requirement for 114 multi role fighter aircraft we will see so as a stop gap measure we can certainly consider foreign aircraft but in the long run we must develop our own aircraft okay utkarsh says what are the main beliefs of the charvakas and are you a charvaka the charvaka philosophy is one of the uh, one of the philosophies that comes under the dharmic umbrella so in the dharmic world there are a whole there's a whole range of philosophical schools of thought charvaka yoga mimamsa sankhya uh vedanta and so on and so forth i think there are at least nine major schools of thought and lots of other schools of thought as well so charvaka is one of these dharmic well it it does fall under the dharmic umbrella what are the main beliefs uh, charvaka is pure materialism according to the charvaka philosophy all that exists is what you can see and what you can observe and there is nothing beyond that there is no karma there is no soul there are no gods there is nothing apart from that so the only objective only purpose of life is to enjoy your existence enjoy your material senses enjoy the material world and that's it there is nothing beyond that so that is in brief the belief of the charvakas am i a charvaka absolutely not i am not a charvaka 
आदर्श says adarsh kumar yadav says considering you are from a scientific background do you identify yourself as an atheist or a dharmic person do science and dharma defy each other or uh, do science and dharma defy each other well you know all of india's ancient scientists were rishis they all came under they all adhered to one of the major schools of dharmic thought the uh, one of the major schools philosophical schools schools of philosophical dharmic thought and philosophy is not spirituality it is not blind belief Spiri- uh, philosophy involves logic philosophy doesn't exist without logic but philosophy also uh, encompasses uh, thoughts and ideas and things like that that may be exist beyond the observable or physical realm so that is what philosophy is in every single indian scientist mathematician astronomer etc was an adherent of one of the major philosophical schools of thought and none of them were charvaka for instance for example charvaka is atheism right so in dharma there has been science always dharma has never said that believe something blindly the world is flat and that's it and don't go beyond that no people haven't been burned at the stake for for saying new things for coming up with new ideas india has contributed the most in the ancient world to science astronomy uh, pharmacology toxicology ayurveda uh, yoga uh, mathematics uh, infinite series calculus uh, trigonometry algebra all of that came from india and all of the mathematicians all of the scientists they were all rishis dharmic rishis so science and dharma do not defy each other dharma is very very scientific if india's universities had not been destroyed a thousand years ago india would have been at the extreme forefront of science and technology today because that's what india always was india indians would have discovered relativity quantum mechanics they may even have been able to reconcile gravity and uh, and and quantum theory you know so science and dharma do not defy each other now when you talk about atheist you are most likely talking about charvakas well if you look at india's great philosophers india's great scientists astronomers brahmagupta aryabhatta nilakantha and so many more none of them were charvaka none of them were atheists and i also do not identify myself as an atheist aniket says samarkand looks like a sanskrit name but wikipedia says it's a sogdian language word what's your take so let's uh, let's go to our our map the map is our best friend all right we have a map here where is samarkand all right so let's go further so samarkand is over here it's north of india yeah if you go way south of india you come into pak- i mean if you go south due south of samarkand you reach pakistan which was historically always for thousands of years india so samarkand is not far from india as such it is in the region known as known in ancient times as sogdia and the language they spoke there was the sogdian language which is very close to the gandharan language the gandhari language today it is classified by western linguists as an iranian language they try to classify everything into iranian into the iranian language family anyhow so samarkand was is here it is part it is located in ancient sogdia 
and there is this other city here called Tashkent. Both of these cities are in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan, right? Now the question is, Samarkand sounds like a Sanskrit name. Wikipedia says it's a Sogdian language word. Well, Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information. Have you heard of Takshashila? Takshashila is down south in present-day Pakistan. It was one of our great, great ancient universities, maybe the oldest known university in the entire universe, known universe. So there was Takshashila. It is believed that Tashkent, the original name was Takshakhand, and Samarkand's original name was Samarkand. But the Western linguists and Western historians do not accept this. But hey, we don't have to accept their nonsense either. So it is well known that in before the Turkic invasions, the entirety of Central Asia was very much a part of Greater India. Buddhism was rampant everywhere. It was spread everywhere. Not only Buddhism, Hinduism as, as well. You had Hindu temples all the way west in Armenia, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, etc. So Hinduism and Buddhism, which is the same thing, was spread. Dharmic culture essentially was spread all across Central Asia. So it is not inconceivable that Tashkent would have actually been called Takshakhand in the past and Samarkand may have been called Samarkand in the past. And in fact, even parts of uh, present-day northern China, Kashgar, for instance, you see the city of Kashgar here, it's a small town over here. It was known until quite recently as Kashinagar, right? So that is the history, that is the truth. And uh, so it's it's quite possible that Samarkand and Tashkent were known as Samarkand and Takshakhand in the past. Okay, next question. Sagar says, please explain about the Chandrasekhar limit and Schwarzschild radius. Can we create a miniature black hole from any small mass, say a brick or a molecule? Good question. So what is the Chandrasekhar limit? The Chandrasekhar limit is the maximum mass of a stable white dwarf star. A white dwarf is something that's left behind essentially from the death of a large star. And the Chandrasekhar limit is the minimum, a uh, maximum, sorry, maximum mass that a stable white dwarf can have. If the mass goes beyond that, then it it either turns into a neutron star or a black hole. So the Chandrasekhar limit is most, uh, uh, it's, it is uh, measured to be approximately 1.44 solar masses. So 1.44 multiplied by the mass of the sun, that is the Chandrasekhar limit. And this was discovered by the Indian astrophysicist Subramanian Chandrasekhar in the 1930s when he was still a graduate student, right? So he discovered this, he did the calculations, he published the papers, and there was a big controversy because there was this so-called eminent uh, astrophysicist called Arthur Eddington. He was British. He opposed this and he was very eminent. He had a very big uh, reputation and all. So people just quietly accepted what he said. And uh, that was a so that kind of hindered Chandrasekhar's work for a very long time, Arthur Eddington. He claimed that there should be a law of nature to prevent a star from behaving in this absurd How stupid. This is when dogma comes in the way of science. And it's unfortunate this that you see this very often among eminent scientists. Anyhow, so that's what the Chandrasekhar limit is. What is the Schwarzschild radius? It is uh, the radius of the event horizon 
of a non-rotating Schwarzschild black hole. A non-rotating black hole is called a Schwarzschild black hole and its radius, the, the radius of its event horizon, the the boundary of no, the, the point at which even light cannot go back, that is called the Schwarzschild radius. It is, its calculation is, I mean, its formula is very simple, 2mg by c squared, where m is the mass of the black hole, g is Newton's uh, gravitational constant, and c is the speed of light. 2mg by c squared, that is the Schwarzschild radius of any black hole. The sun has a Schwarzschild radius of approximately 3 kilometers. The earth has a Schwarzschild radius of approximately 9 millimeters. And the moon has a Schwarzschild radius of approximately 0 0.1 millimeters. So if you compress the entire mass of the sun into a radius of 3 kilometers, then it will become a black hole. If you compress the earth, the entire mass of the earth, in a radius of approximately 9 millimeters, then it will become a black hole. And if you take the entire moon and you squeeze it into a radius of 0 0.1 millimeters, that's when it will also become a black hole. So you can create a miniature black hole from any mass as long as you are able to compress it into its Schwarzschild radius, whether it's a brick, whether it's a molecule, whether it's the earth, the sun, anything. Every mass has a Schwarzschild radius. The calculation is very simple, 2mg by c squared. So that's your answer, sir. Next question. Okay, these I get a number of questions like these, so I've taken two. Pratik says, why is the British St. George Cross still a part of the naval flag? Kuldeep asks and says, I think it's high time we design our own Army, Navy, Air Force flags. We are still using a copy-paste version of the Brit colonial British flags. Please share your views about this. All right, so what is the, the, the controversy about? Let me share my screen. Okay. One second, let me, um, here we are. So this is the St. George's cross. This is what it, what it looks like. It is this, this is the cross, right? This is essentially the, uh, the flag of England. It's also part of the Union Jack, the, the flag of Great Britain, so-called Great Britain. Now, what is the Indian Navy flag? Well, here's the Indian naval flag. It has the St. George Cross with some local stuff added to it, but the main component is the St. George Cross. There you have it. There you have it. There you have it, and so on and so forth. So the question is, why? Why are we still continuing with these colonial uh, representation in our armed forces? Why does the army, navy, the navy essentially, I'm not sure about the army, but the navy certainly has this St. George cross as, as the major component of its flag. And that's a valid question. We uh, are supposed to have be, be, been independent for over seven decades. Why are we still worshipping the symbols of colonialism, oppression, and all that. Why are we still doing that? Why can't we have a naval flag that is entirely Indian? Why can't we have? Why can't we decolonize ourselves of all these various symbols of the of the millennium of humiliation? 
the symbols of occupation, the symbols of plunder, of the destruction of Indian civilization. Why do we need to still carry on these flags? And the answer is very simple. Our armed forces are deeply colonized. This is not a criticism of the armed forces, by the way. Our soldiers are the bravest soldiers in the world. They are the best soldiers in the world. Our generals, our leaders are great. No doubt about that. And yet we are maintaining, we are continuing colonial traditions. Somebody had, uh, pointed out, I saw some comment that the armed forces are extensively anglicized. And uh, even if you read V.S. Naipaul, one of his books, I don't remember which one, I've read a few. So in one of his books about India, he says, he spoke about visiting an Indian army camp and way after India's so-called independence. And he noticed a portrait of the Queen of England in, in the dinner hall, dining hall in the Indian army, long after independence. So this is unfortunately a continuation of the colonial traditions of the Indian army. All the uh, many or most of the traditions are colonial traditions. And you also see things like we still retain the names of the regiments that the British gave us. The Rajputana rifles, Maratha whatever, uh, Sikh regiment, uh, Assam rifles. These are essentially names they gave to our regiments based on their so-called, uh, what was it called? Martial race theory. They, they said, they, they claimed that India is home to a number of martial races, the Juts, the Rajputs, the Sikhs, the Marathas and some other people. And they gave regiments the names of these, these so-called ethnicities or races, right? What this does is that it creates this, this divide even, even among the army. The Gurkha regiment is another one, right? It's another ethnic name. We should not name our regiments after ethnicities or, or, or states or regions. This creates an unnecessary divide in the army. If you look at Julius Caesar during the Roman times, his regiments were all numbered. They were given numbers. If you look at the Americans, I think the US army also has numbered regiments. By giving names, what will happen is that tomorrow the Gujaratis will say, we want a Gujarati regiment. The Manipuris will say, we want a Manipuri regiment. The Odias will say, we want a Odia regiment. The Tamils will say, why isn't there a Tamil regiment? And so on and so forth. This is unnecessary. So there is so much uh, colonial baggage the armed forces are still carrying on. I think the great General Bipin Singh Rawat was trying to reform the army. It was his great task. Unfortunately, his life was cut short. And I hope that whoever is appointed the new CDS will take these reforms forward because India's armed forces need significant and deep reforms. So yes, these questions are very valid. They have to be taken seriously. We cannot have colonized armed forces. You see that after the great General Rawat died, many people ex-armed forces, service people, servicemen, they went on social media and celebrated the death of this man. India's chief of defense uh, staff, right? CDS. It, it makes me ask the question, why, why is it so? Why do certain sections of India's armed forces have such sentiments? Because when you are celebrating the death of your top general, it is, some, it is an event 
that is detrimental to the national interest. So you are celebrating harm to India and to India's national interest. And that sort of sentiment is unacceptable in the armed forces. So I am not saying the present serving uh, personnel have such sentiments, but certainly the people who have retired, who were part of the Nehruvian and post-Nehruvian regimes, certainly seem to have a certain level of that sentiment. Some of them at least seem to have it. So India's armed forces need to be reformed. No doubt about it. There is no question about their professionalism, their abilities, their capabilities. They are the best in the world. They are the bravest people. They are, you cannot question their integrity, but there seems to be some element of colonialism left over that needs to be addressed and addressed soon. So I hope that the that the person who is appointed the next CDS will carry on the flame of General Rawat and complete the reforms that he was undertaking. All right, uh, two questions again, one by Swaroop and one by Science Soldier. At least 1,000 years before Pythagoras, Bodhiyana mentioned the geometric theory of three-sided tri triangle. The credit, the credit for authoring the earliest Sulba Sutras goes to him. Why wasn't it acknowledged and did not receive any kind of credit or credit or recognition? Bodhiyana is said to be the original mathematician behind the so-called Pythagoras theorem. Indians discovered it at least a thousand years before the before Pythagoras was born. Can you confirm this? So, if you look at Western mathematicians, Western historians of science, they claim that Bodhayana lived maybe 100-200 years before Pythagoras. That's what they claim. Now, the Sulba Sutras are part of the Vedic corpus of texts. These are Vedic texts. And the Vedic era was way before Pythagoras. Way before all that, right? So, the, what they claim doesn't make any sense. It is completely incorrect and it should be brushed off. It should be laughed off. So it is clear that Baudhiyana lived a long time before Pythagoras. We don't know. We're not quite sure when. And that's the main problem in Indian historiography, Indian history. We don't know the, the dates of the deep antiquity of India. But clearly Baudhiyana, the great Rishi Baudhiyana, lived long before Pythagoras. And yes, the, the, the so-called Pythagorean theorem was well known to him. He published it. He wrote about it in the Sulba Sutras. Right? And if you look at Wikipedia, I think they, they call it Bodhayana knew about the Pythagorean theorem before Pythagoras was, Pythagoras was born. So this is a symptom, one of the many, many symptoms of the utter Eurocentricity of history. And the this 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 state exists because India's historians are blind followers of the West. They have no original ideas. They are incapable of doing any genuine, original, authentic research of their own. And they are too scared to assert the truth. And many of them are just sold out. Most of them are sold out. The, the eminent, official, mainstream historians of India. So it is clear that the so-called Pythagoras theorem should be called the Bodhayana theorem. So let's all decide to call it that way, right? All right, next question. Is it true that in 1941, Stalin ordered to open the tomb of Timur the monster? And what did they find in his tomb? You know what they found? They found the bones of a monster. <laughs> Yes, so it is true. I don't know which year it was, but Stalin did order the exhumation of uh, 
Timur's tomb. They went into, into Timur's mausoleum. They opened his tomb. They pulled his skeleton out and they did all kinds of tests on the guy. So let's take a look at what this was like. Let's take a look at Mr. Timur the monster. All right, let's uh, get away from the map. Go to google.com and the Timur exhumation. Let's see, let's go to images. So this is when they uh, examined his dead body, his skeleton. This is a larger image of that. This is a picture of the guy's head, the great monster's head, the skull. Uh, let's see some other images. Here it is again. And here is a reconstruction of his face based on the body, on the skull. Uh, here is another uh, image of his skeleton. So, yeah, so, so his body was exhumed. And they reconstructed his face from his skull. This is what his face looked like. Uh, so this is a reasonably accurate representation of what Timur the monster, Timur the lame, would actually have looked life, like in real life, in old age. And they also discovered that he was indeed lame. So he did have some deformity or, or, or uh, injury in one of his legs, which is why he was called Timur Lung, Timur Lung or Timur the Lame. So that's what they, that's what actually happened. And that's what they found in his tomb. They dismantled his skeleton, took it out, did all kinds of studies, reconstructed his face based on the skull. And then eventually they placed the bones back in the tomb and closed it again. And that's where people today, even today go to to see his tomb. Some people want to go and play tribute, pay tribute to him. And some people want to go and dance at his tomb. So, all right. Next question. It's by Goku. Is the great game still going on? Is India the last, still the last remaining prize? If the great game is still going on, how much wealth and resources they want to suck out of India? Aren't they satisfied with what they did over two, for over 200 years? Well, what you're referring to, the great game, well, what was the original great game? It was the, it was the, uh, it was the struggle to capture and control Central Asia. It was between the British Empire and the Russian Empire. The British controlled India and they wanted to control Central Asia as well so that the Russians could not come down, come south and try to invade India and take over parts of India as well. The Russians knew that India was an extraordinarily rich land that the British were uh, profiting from. They were pillaging, plundering the land and that's how they became incredibly rich and powerful. And the Russians wanted some of that. So they also wanted to invade India and colonize India. And the key to that was Central Asia. So that was the great game, the um, the struggle, the battle for control of Central Asia. So that was in the 19th century. It all essentially ended with the Crimean War in the middle of the 19th century, when, in which the Russians lost. But there was some, some of it still continued until later. Tibet was also in, involved in this to some extent and so on and so forth. So that was the great game. And the prize, the big prize was India. So the question is, is the great game still going on? The great game is always going on. India is still a big prize. There's a reason why the West doesn't want India to industrialize and become a manufacturing uh, and uh, technological superpower. India 
see, if you become a manufacturing superpower, you, your GDP shoots up. It shoots up. We have seen that in the case of China. In 30 years, the GDP shot up and, and way went way past, past India. It is now almost a middle-income country today, all because of manufacturing. So if India becomes a manufacturing powerhouse, a technological powerhouse, R&D powerhouse, scientific powerhouse, then it will become a superpower. It is guaranteed. What the West wants is they want India to remain a large market of consumers, not producers. If you produce, you grow. Your GDP grows. If you consume, you are a huge market to which they can sell all their junk. Fast food, uh, social media, and so on and so forth. If you go and eat it, uh, eat, uh, go to your favorite pizza chain, go to your favorite burger chain, go to your favorite fast food chain, it's quite likely that it's uh, it has some element of American uh, investment or maybe it's an American-owned chain or brand. So they want India to remain a huge market that doesn't produce anything but buys things from elsewhere, consumes things from, from the West, essentially. And that is what they want because that will enrich them. It will keep on enriching them at the cost of India. India's resources will keep flowing out the same way they kept flowing out during the East India Company days and the British Raj days. So this is called neo-colonialism. This is a new form of colonialism. And as long as India remains uh, under-industrialized, India will be at their mercy. And that's why India needs to become a manufacturing and industrial powerhouse. If we do that, we become a superpower, economically at least. And then it's about political will, whether we become a military superpower as well or not. So that, yes, it is definitely true that India is the last remaining prize. The Chinese market is off limits. The Chinese are very clear about what their uh, aims and objectives are. They will not allow their population, their citizens to be used as a market for Western garbage. So the big prize, 1.3 billion humans is India. That's why they do not want India to industrialize. They want India to remain a captive market, a, a nation of consumers, not creators. Consumers, not producers. So go ahead and create. Go ahead and produce. That is the lesson from this. Many of you in the next 10-20 years are going to lead India and the world in various domains in the creative field, in the industrial field, in technology, in science, in leadership, in politics. So learn this lesson, heed this lesson. India has to become a manufacturing and technological and scientific superpower if it wants to become an overall geopolitical superpower. Okay, this is an interesting question. It's by uh, Shyam. Did Nehru lie in parliament that India was never offered a UN permanent seat. Very uh, good question. So let me share my screen with you and and offer some kind of evidence. All right. So was Mr. Nehru, did, did Mr. Nehru lie in parliament about the UN Security Council? So uh, this is a very famous article by the Wilson Center. It says, uh, the title is Not at the Cost of China, India and the UN Security Council, 1950. So there was an offer made to Mr. Nehru by the US 
in 1950 for a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. But Mr. Nehru rejected that. He said not at the cost of China. He wanted China to become a permanent member first and then let's see about India. Right. So this is what is mentioned here. It is laid out in great detail. Now there is this other article over here in the Washington Post. Let us wait for it to load. So if you see down here, all right, it says India was offered a permanent seat on the UN Security Council 55 years ago in 1955. But that offer made by the US and the Soviet Union was declined by India's first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. Nehru said the seat should be given to China instead. So the Wilson Center article talks about 1950. This Washington Post article talks about 1955. Isn't that interesting? Hmm? So 1950 and 1955, the US and the USSR both. Now take a look at this. This is a statement made by the former UN Under Secretary General Shashi Tharoor. Mr. Tharoor says that Jawaharlal Nehru declined a US offer to India to take the permanent seat on the UN Security Council in 19, around 1953 and suggested it should be gone, given to China. And he has written this in a book, The Invention of India. Okay, So Mr. Tharoor has also corroborated this. I think the former President Pranab Mukherjee also corroborated the fact that India was offered this and Mr. Nehru declined the offer. Now, let's take a look at this. All right, this is all on the record. I am not making anything up. Take a look at this. This is from September 28, 1955. Okay, this is the, the proceedings of the Parliament of India. Mr. Nehru clar clarifies in Parliament. Prime Minister Nehru has categorically denied any offer, formal, formal or informal, having been received about a seat for India in the UN Security Council. He made this statement in reply to a short notice question in the Lok Sabha on September 27, 1955 by whoever, whether India had refused a seat informally offered to her in the Security Council. The Prime Minister Nehru said there has been no offer formal or informal of this kind. Some vague references have, uh, have appeared in the press about it and so on. Uh, yeah, so, so that's what Mr. Nehru said in Parliament. Now, it has already been clearly established by the evidence from the Wilson Center, from the Washington Post, from Mr. Shashi Tharoor himself, a great lover of Mr. Nehru, and also from President Pranam Mukherjee, that these offers were indeed made between 1950, 1953, and 1955. And yet, it is on the record that Mr. Nehru denied this officially in on the floor of the Lok Sabha in India's Parliament. So, I will leave it to you, my dear viewers, to judge whether Mr. Nehru lied in Parliament or not. Ujwal Chauhan says, does the bloodline of Pandavas still exist? And if it exists, then in today's world, who are their descendants? Good question. So the Pandavas were five in number, five brothers, right? And they all had multiple children uh, with Draupadi, with other wives as well. Some of the children died during the Mahabharata war. Abhimanyu died, Arjun's son. Uh, some others also died, but clearly many of the descendants survived past the Mahabharata war, past the events of this great war. Uh, Abhimanyu's son Parikshit became the next emperor, the next king of the Kuru region, of the Kuru empire. Uh, 
he was the successor of his grand uncle Yudhishthir, right? So uh, Abhimanyu's son became the next king and his descendants Janmajay, etc. were the later kings of this dynasty and they all had children. So it's clear that their lineage uh, survived and proliferated uh, down the line. So the question is, so the, the bloodline certainly survived. They had many descendants and when you have many descendants, it's almost a given 99.999% that your bloodline survived and it most likely still exists today. The question is, who are their descendants? Now that's a good question. So let me, uh, let me uh, share an image to illustrate who their descendants might be, right? So this is, uh, let me remove the question so you can see clearly. So let's take a look at how ancestry works, right? We all believe that we are descendants of one lineage, one single lineage, right? So let's say you are in generation zero. If you can see, uh, if you can see the top, there is generation zero and it is about you. You are generation zero. Now, if you go back 25 years, we assume that one generation is about 25 years. So if you go back 25 years, your ancestors are your two parents. So you have two ancestors. If you go back 50 years, you have four ancestors, uh, which who were your grandparents. If you go back 75 years, you had eight ancestors. If you go back 100 years, you had 16 ancestors. If you go back 500 years, you had a million ancestors. So you, if you if you go back just five centuries in your own lineage, you had a million ancestors, a million lines of descent. If you go back six hundred years, it's ten million. If you go back six seventy five years, it's a hundred million. So what does this tell us, my friends? It tells us that if you go back several centuries, almost everybody who lived in India at that time was your ancestors. And there will be a lot of uh, uh, cross-references and all, which means that you won't act actually have 10 million ancestors. Many of them will be ancestors of some other lineages. So the number of ancestors will be less, but almost everybody in India is related to each other. If you look at it in this manner, you don't have a single line of descent. You go, don't belong to a single family. You belong to, you are a descendant of millions of families and millions of lineages. Now it is known that during the Indus Valley time, during the, uh, the Saraswati Sindhu civilization, India's population was at least 5 or 10 million people, which was enormous for that time. Right? So it indicates, and, and assuming that though that was the entire population of India, it indicates that almost all of those people are your ancestors. And most likely the Mahabharata happened around this time or maybe slightly before this. And that would indicate that any person who was alive at that time, anybody at all, would have descendants living today or relatives living today. And since there were so many descendants of Pandavas, it tells you, my friends, that you are all in some way or the other descended from the Pandavas. And so am I. It tells you, my friends, that all of you no matter what so-called caste you belong to, no matter what community you belong to, whether you're North, East, South, West, whatever part of India, you all are descended from kings and queens and emperors of India. That's the answer.
Vishal says, is there any enmity between the Turks and Arabs or are they friends? That's an interesting question because we all see, we all consider, we all believe that all the nations in the Islamic world are all allies and they work together. Right. And yet you will find that there are lots of schisms and uh, and enmities and adversarial relationships in the Islamic world. For instance, Iran is opposed, is, is an adversary, a mortal adversary of the Saudis and various other, other countries. The Turks and the Iranians don't get along. The Turks and the Saudis also don't quite get along. And the reason is very simple. The battle for supremacy. The battle for the leadership position, the pole position in the Islamic world. Who is going to be the leader, the global leader of the Islamic Ummah? The Saudis claim that position because they are the custodians of the two holiest uh, uh, sites of the Islamic world, Mecca and Medina. So they are the custodians of these uh, sites and that's why they should be the... Uh, and also because the Islamic religion came out of Arabia, right? So the Saudis claim to be the natural inheritors of that leadership title. The Turks disagree. The Turks said that we were the greatest of the, the greatest empire of the Islamic world, the Ottoman Empire, the great conqueror, right? Fatih. They conquered... Uh, Eastern Rome, they, East, they conquered the Eastern Roman Empire, Constantinople, and made that made that city their their capital, and they conquered a vast empire across Asia and across uh, parts of Europe as well. And theirs was the la- last caliph of the Islamic world. So the Turks claim, the Turks feel in their blood that they are the inheritors of the mantle of the leaders of the Islamic world, and the new uh, the 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 latest the the current leader of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan, I believe he wishes to be the next caliph. He wants to resuscitate the Ottoman Empire. And if you have such ambitions, such geopolitical ambitions, then you will never envisage or never uh, contemplate the possibility of anybody else trying to rise to the position. And that's why there is a significant rivalry between the Turks and the Arabs, especially the Saudis. So, the answer is, there is a significant amount of enmity, at least at a certain level, not outward enmity, but clearly uh, concealed, wheeled enmity between the Turks and the Arabs. Next question is by Tahir. Why didn't the French succeed in India? As their commanding officer in India, Duplay was the founder of the divide and rule concept, while the British copied them later, but the difference was the British landed in Bengal where the French established their control in southern India. Uh, excellent question. So I will answer this at a conceptual level, not on a detailed historical chronological level. Uh, you are right, the British landed in Bengal. That's why Bengal is the most colonized part of India today. Uh, the French established their control in southern India. Correct. Now what happened? Dupley was a very good governor general. Uh, he fought the British. He tried to establish a great uh, amount of French rule, extensive French rule in India. That was the ambition. That was the objective. Now, it is clear that in the Carnatic Wars, the, the British came out on top. The French lost. And after that, um, the French were never, never able to gain much ground. And the British eventually were able to succeed in uh, annexing and, and uh, subjugating, occupying the whole of India. So why was this? Why did the British succeed while the French 
failed. You know what they say? They say, follow the logistics, follow the money. In any operation, in any endeavor, in any project, follow the logistics, follow the money, and you will get your answers, right? So for a foreign occupation to succeed, what is required? You are a foreign occupier. You Let's say you are British. You have come several thousand kilometers away from your home country, and you are trying to occupy a foreign land. So what are the right what what do you need in order to succeed to succeed you need arms and ammunition you need supplies you need logistical supply chains you need money to bribe the locals and so on and so forth you need all these di different tools at your disposal that are required in order to succeed in a foreign land as an occupier logistics money weapons all of that supplies you need a constant stream of supplies, right? The British were able to do that. They had extensive logistical routes because they were able to conquer other parts of the world as well, right? So they had this. The French did not quite have this. Napoleon tried to conquer Egypt. He failed even in that because he did not have proper supply routes. And he was all alone. He was cut off from his country. The British occupiers of India were never cut off from their country. Now, what happened was that there was a great period of turbulence in the 18th and 19th centuries. Essentially, in the early 19th centuries, century, the Napoleonic Wars, after which the French lost and they became quite weak compared to the British Empire. So there was a lot of turmoil at home. There was a lot of political instability at home. And very often there was a great deal of neglect of the occupying forces in India. And that's why they did not have the amount of weaponry, the amount of supplies, the logistics, the money, etc. that they would have wanted to have. If Dupley and the later governor general, general generals, the French governor generals had those things, they may possibly have been able to overcome the British, defeat them, and India would be speaking French today. That would have happened. So at a conceptual level, it's the, the success, of, success of a foreign occupation depends on logistics, on supplies, weapons, arms, ammunition, other supplies, money, and all that. And, and also troops. You should be able to replenish your troop supplies. When you go to war, you go, go to, you have a battle, your troops die. Let's say you went with 10,000 people and 40% of your troops died. You're left with only 6,000. That's a big problem. So you need, you need to keep getting new supplies of troops from your homeland. The British were able to put pour in lots of troops into India. The French did not have that uh, luxury. So these are the reasons why the French failed while the British succeeded. Okay, Roll Wind says, why were the Mongols unable to capture Japan? Excellent question. I may have answered this again in the past, but let me answer again. So the Mongol invasions of Japan, there were two invasions, two attempted invasions of Japan in the second half of the 13th century, I believe. Yes, 13th century, under Kublai Khan. The, the emperor Kublai Khan was the first... Uh, the the third emperor of the Yuan dynasty of China. So the Mongols had conquered all of China, smashed China, taken Beijing, and they had installed their emperors on the Chinese throne. So Kublai Khan was the, uh, well, he was actually the first, but in his uh, calculations, he was the third. He considered his grandfather, Chinggis Khan, the great conqueror Chinggis Khan, to be the first emperor of the Yuan dynasty. Uh, then, 
Ogodai Khan was the second and Ching- uh, and Kublai was the third. So under Kublai Khan, the Mongols, the Mongol Empire, the Yuan, uh, Yuan Empire attempted two invasions of Japan in the late, in the second half of the 13th century. Right? And these were maritime invasions. They involved ships and troops on ships, marines essentially, because Japan is a bunch of islands. It's an archipelago. So the first invasion was in the, I think, 1270s, sometime like that. Don't don't, uh, take me at my word. It's somewhere around that time. The first invasion was around that time. They landed on the island of Tsushima, Tsushima, and they had a a bit of success, the Mongols. And then there was this great typhoon, this great storm that swept away all the Mongol ships and saved Japan, right? And there was a second invasion six or seven or eight years, less than a decade later. And once again, there was a great mega typhoon, a great uh, storm that again swept away the Mongol invading fleet. So these were two acts of divine intervention. Massive storms that destroyed the Mongol invading fleet, invasion fleet. So the Japanese call these storms kamikaze, divine wind. So that, so in one word, why were the Mongols unable to capture Japan? Kamikaze. That is the reason. The divine wind saved Japan. These acts of God saved Japan from the Mongol invasion. Karan says, would love to hear your views about on how the geopolitical situation of the Indian subcontinent and the world at large will evolve in the coming 30 to 50 years. Well, it's a, that's a big, big uh, tableau you're asking me to, play, to paint. See, essentially, there are three possibilities, three possible outcomes. One outcome is that we, conti- we continue with the status quo. Right now, the US is the sole superpower. China is a rising power, a great power almost. Not quite a superpower. It has big ambitions. But today, the US rules the world. It controls the global supply chains. It controls the so-called rules-based global order and so on. So one possibility, one possible outcome next 30, 50 years is that the status quo persists. The Americans manage to retain the top position in the world. They manage to retain their superpower status and the world stays the way it is today. That's scenario one. Scenario two is that the Chinese win. They they manage to push the Americans off the top position. They replace the Americans there. They become become the number one economic power, the number one military power, and they reshape the world order, in which case there will be a lot of changes of the borders in Asia. If if the Chinese succeed in, in defeating the U.S., and displacing the US, then they will definitely want to break India up into pieces. If they become that strong, they will succeed. And they will reshape the entire uh, globe, the political boundaries of the globe and of Asia. The third scenario is that India manages somehow to get its act together. And India becomes a great power on its own. And maybe you will have a multipolar world or eventually maybe India in the next 50 years may become the top superpower. These are three possible scenarios. The first scenario is that the Americans stay on top. That looks a little unlikely right now. America is no longer producing great leaders. The last great president of the US was Ronald Reagan. After that, they have produced, I I am afraid, I'm sorry to say, but 
kind of mediocre presidents on both sides of the political divide yeah so the american uh, nation isn't producing great leaders anymore the, it it looks like a na- nation that it's that is at war with itself a crumbling nation so it is unlikely statistically speaking that the americans will will remain on top in the next 50 years so scenario 1 is rather unlikely scenario 2 is that the chinese win that seems more likely that the chinese will win they have all the all the plans in place uh, they have infiltrated all the global organizations the who the un the un security council and all kinds of other things and they have this extensive network of trade supply chains they are the manufacturing superpower so they have great advantages they control many of the raw materials in the world and so on and so forth so it's quite possible that they may come out on top so that is a more likely scenario but so third scenario is that india will come out on top in the next 50 years that is the least likely scenario but is the scenario that i would like to have to to come about so how can india do that it's by getting its act to act together the current political system of governance cannot work it is extremely detrimental to the national the parliamentary system of governance uh, the so called uh, the this this uh, supposedly democratic system of governance uh this the federal system this western constitution the western laws secularism all that nonsense if in and and the, then the horrible horrible bureaucracy which slows everything down you want to make a change it takes 5 to 10 years even a simple change will take that long so and there is so much corruption in india you can't even speak about it so if this continues india is relegated to mediocrity if india wants to succeed in the next 30 to 50 years to become a great power or a superpower india has to very soon get rid of this entire system get rid of this foreign constitution it needs to create a new constitution a new system of governance democracy with indian characteristics india is the motherland of democracy and it needs to make sure that its decision making process is rapid in the 21st century the nations that make the de- their decisions the fastest the quickest and implement them, them the fastest are the nations which will rule the world india today has a very very slow decision making process so if we change this which is a monumental task but if we change it then india will certainly succeed in becoming a superpower so these are the things that can happen and let's wait and watch i want india to succeed i want india to reclaim its rightful place its rightful historical place in the world rohan says the japanese company nippon carbon is the main supplier of ceramics ceramic matrix composites to ge XA100 adaptive cycle jet engine which is used which is planned to be used in the us sixth generation program The Japanese have already successfully tested the XF91 engine in 2018 with a 100 kN dry thrust and 140 kN wet thrust. They are now working on a 190 kN variant to use in their upcoming 6th generation Mitsubishi F3 fighter jet. How will it affect China should India go for a deal with the Japanese assistance in Kaveri Kaveri program if a deal with the Rolls-Royce and Safran which are under the table fails? How will it affect China? It will if the japanese are able to develop the technology it will certainly pose a great challenge to china because it will it will mean that the japanese have better fighter planes 
Right. So this may happen in the next five to ten years. And will they be able to build sufficient numbers of fighter planes to challenge the Chinese is a question. But the technology the Japanese are, are developing is certainly superior to the Chinese technology by at least an order of magnitude. Right. I mean, a jet engine with 190 kilonewtons thrust is amazing. It's powerful. You know, it's a powerful jet engine. Uh, the Indians, we in India, are developing the Kaveri jet engine. It's been a very slow, long process, stops and starts. It was cancelled a couple of times, then it's back on the on the on the agenda. So I don't know what is the current status. It's under secrecy. Uh, there's not enough uh, sufficient communication. Maybe with good reason. Uh, the question is, should India go for Japanese assistance in the Kaveri program? So right now, what we know, what I know, is that. Uh, we have a deal with Snecma or, or Safran. It's now called Safran, which is a French jet engine manufacturer. There is going to be a transfer of technology, I, I believe. I mean, that's what I heard from, from the news. There's going to be a transfer of technology and they're going to make this Kaveri engine work finally. So I don't know when it will happen. Maybe we will not be, we will not announce it when it happens. We'll do it quietly, which is good. Now, should India go for Japanese assistance? Well, is the offer of is there an offer of assistance on the table will the japanese be willing to share their latest technology will they be even willing to share some older technology with india i don't know about that uh, it makes sense for a nation not to share its best technology with anybody right because let's say you share it with nation a or nation b and what if the Chinese have spies in nation A or nation B or maybe nation C and they are able to steal the technology? We know for a fact that in the early 2000s, the Chinese had this extensive uh, electronic spying program called Titan Rain. They had these computer hackers who stole enormous amounts of uh, classified American blueprints and, and, and military information. They stole the blueprints for the F-35 jet fighter, F-22 jet fighter, these uh, the, the cutting edge technology, and they have incorporated that into their, the Chinese jet fighters, which we see today, the J, whatever is it, I don't remember the num name, but the Chinese stole that. So if you, if the Japanese transfer some technology to nation A, nation B, whoever it is, Will they be, are they sure that these nations, the, the secrets will not be stolen from them by the Chinese? So the Japanese will have all these uh, worries and, and, and considerations. And I'm not sure if they will be willing to uh, share their latest technology with India. So I don't, I have not heard of any such offer of assistance being on the table from Japan. So I think we should simply conclude the deal with the French. India and France have excellent uh, strategic have an excellent strategic relationship uh, at multiple levels, diplomatic level, uh, geopolitical level, uh, and even in the military, as we know, the Rafale uh, deal is there. So India has an excellent relationship with the French. And as long as we get good technology and the recovery engine works, finally, we will be able to proceed forward from there and maybe eventually in the next 10 years, build multiple variants of this engine with uh, higher thrust, maybe. So that's what we should do as long as that, that deal is there. We should just go forth, forth with that. If the deal is no longer on the table, then we will have to either develop the technology ourselves or look for some other supplier. Mayur says, 
my friend from lgbt said to me that he wants to fight homophobia and islamophobia when i told him about the conditions of the lgbtq community in islamic countries he called me a conservative and told me that i am not well read how according to you can we build can we bring today's leftist lgbtq community under the umbrella of our civilization and in our fight against the enemies of the nation look the simple answer is they need to be educated about our real history as long as our education system teaches fake false distorted hindu phobic history anti india history of our history or of our past people will continue to be misled it will be very easy to mislead people as long as this happens right so the solution the long term solution is to reform india's education system and rewrite india's history textbooks from a, from a factual perspective not from any ideological perspective left or right it has to be simply based on actual facts that's it and the facts are very clear lgbtq people have never ever 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 been persecuted in india in any shape or form that's it now uh, your friend i mean he says you're not well read what a joke the other question is all you have to do is invite your friend to go and move to iran or or, or to just uh, spend a week in iran go on vacation in iran and when you go there declare it officially that i am a lgbtq person that's it just go and do that or go to saudi arabia on vacation and declare it officially in public i am lgbtq i am a homosexual or gay or trans or, or whatever it is yeah whatever just do that will your friend do that because your friend should know that in iran homosexuality is a hanging offense if somebody is convicted of being a homosexual they are hanged there's no other there's no other punishment hanging in other isis held territories and other taliban territories i suppose homosexuals are thrown off buildings yes if you go to saudi arabia if you are caught if you are if you are um, convicted of being a homosexual you lose your head they chop your head off so i don't understand what problem certain lgbtq people have against indian culture indian civilization which has always protected them and given them the same respect that everybody else gets in india it is dharmic civilization which has always treated, treated them better than any other culture or civilization in the world and yet they have these uh, they have these beliefs it is not their fault it is not their fault it is the education system the media the professors in colleges and universities who are virulently anti hindu they are homophobic and they are spreading all these narratives the solution is very simple just send one of them to china to 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 iran to afghanistan to saudi or to some other uh, arabic or turkic or islamic country and see what happens to them right i i mean i'm i don't want to actually send them there just tell them what actually happens there to a person who is lgbtq plus plus whatever right yeah so that's it that's all i can say about it it's 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 terrible that people are being misled in this manner against their own culture their the the culture and civilization of their own ancestors which has always treated them well it's it's terrible and the solution is very simple reform the education system when will the government do it chiching says can you tell me more about alisa carson can an indian astronaut be selected for the mars mission by nasa 
Okay, who is Alyssa Carson? Uh, I don't know much about this lady. She's she's a young girl, 20 years old or something like that. She is uh, someone who wants to become an astronaut. She is uh, an astronomy enthusiast or something. I'm not really sure why she's famous. Uh, I don't know what her accomplishments are, but yeah, she wants to become an, uh, an astronaut. She's an enthusiast of astronomy. So that's the little I can tell you about Alyssa Carson. Uh, can an Indian astronaut be selected for the Mars mission by NASA? Uh, typically, NASA does not uh, hire anybody who is who is not a U.S. citizen for security purposes, for security reasons. So the the over, I mean, the overwhelming majority, I would say, ninety nine point nine percent of their employees are U.S. citizens. Um, as far as astronauts are concerned, they do have a small foreign astronaut program in under which you can apply to be an astronaut even if you're not a u.s citizen so the majority of the u.s of the nasa astronauts are americans but maybe five percent or so may have been uh, citizens of a foreign country so i think indian citizens can apply to be an astronaut in nasa the chances of success will obviously be very slender that applies to everybody even americans but yes i think indians can apply under a under a certain plan, under a certain program to be astronauts with NASA. And yeah, so that's the answer. Okay, Avinash says, if atoms are 99.9% empty, then why do we feel objects? What Avinash is actually saying is, if atoms are complete, almost completely empty, why does matter occupy space? Why are some things hard? Why is this hard? If it is empty, then why is it hard? Why does it occupy space? Right? That's what Avinash is asking. So th the answer is the Pauli exclusion principle. So the Pauli exclusion principle is a quantum mechanical principle, which states that two or more identical fermions, which are particles with half integer spin, these particles, two or more identical particles, fermions, cannot occupy the same quantum state within one quantum system simultaneously. Which means that they have to be far apart and they cannot occupy the same quantum state and the same uh, region, the same shell, orbital, whatever you want, call, you, you want to call it, in an atom and so on. So what are fermions? Particles with half-integer spin, which means they are quarks, leptons, electrons, protons, neutrons. I mean, those are composite fermions. So these are the key building blocks of everyday ordinary matter. And because of the Pauli exclusion principle, matter occupies space. It doesn't collapse into nothingness. Matter occupies space. And that's why the world has the shapes and sizes that we observe. That's why materials are hard. Some materials are hard, some are not. And that's why you have shape, you have size. And that is why we feel objects. Okay, Lakshya says, Lakshmina says, which is bigger than the sun? Okay, is there any star that's bigger than the, than the sun? And what is the name of that star? That is the question that uh, Lakshmina is asking. So here's the deal. Sun is a G-type main sequence star. That's the classification. It is informally classified as a yellow dwarf star. Its light is yellowish, mostly white. It's closer to white than yellow, but it looks yellow to us. So it is classified as a yellow dwarf. So the sun is an average-sized star, which means that 50% of stars approximately 
are smaller than the sun and approximately 50% of the stars are larger, more massive than the sun, which means that on average, half the stars you see in the sky, in the Milky Way, and if you have a telescope across the universe, half of these stars are larger than the, than the sun. So I don't see any point in giving you names of those stars. Betelgeuse is one of those. Vega is another. Um, and, and there are many more stars like that here, you know. Uh, UI Scuti, enormous star, and so on and so forth. So approximately half the stars you see are larger than our sun. Our sun is a perfectly ordinary star. That's what it is. Okay, Chirag says, was really curious about the southern descendants of the Chavda dynasty, that is Chautas, warrior queen Abakka Rani Chauta being the most famous one. It's a very common surname in the Bunt Shetty community as well. Should we take this to be that all warrior communities married freely from north to south as opposed to today, where we are forced to marry within a specified community? Also want to know, are the Chautas really connected to the Chaudas or is it just a coincidence of the names matching? This is a wonderful question, interesting question. So, uh, yes, Abakka Chauta was a great freedom fighter. Hmm. Immensely popular queen in the 16th century. She defeated the Portuguese occupiers, invaders of India, multiple times over uh, several decades. Abakka Chauta, she's the most famous ruler and she's a woman. Right. So here's the thing. The Chautas are certainly a descendants of the Chauda clan, Chauda dynasty of, of uh, Western India, Gujarat. Yeah. Uh, I think there was a migration uh, from Gujarat sometime probably in the 12th century. These events are kind of not recorded properly. It's kind of lost in time. But the migration took place somewhere around the 11th or 12th centuries. And it is known that there were multiple waves of migration of the Chauda clan from Western India to the South of India. For instance, uh, let me share my screen. Uh, one second. Let me share my screen. So you have the Chardo, Chardo people in Goa. They are the Roman Catholic Kshatriyas. Once again, disclaimer, Wikipedia is not necessarily a good source of information. I'm using it for convenience. So the Roman Catholic Kshatriyas are called the Chardo people. Okay, They are Goans. The etymology of this word is the roots of this Konkani word are said to lie in the Prakrit word Chavda, which is the name of a dynasty of warriors, which is said to have migrated to Goa from Saurashtra in the 7th or 8th centuries. Okay, so this is the this is the origin of the Chardo people, the Roman Catholic Kshatriyas. They got converted to Catholic, uh, to to Christianity during the uh, Portuguese occupation of Western India of Goa. Yeah, so the Chardo people, the Goan Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic Kshatriyas, the Goan Kshatriyas Catholics are a descendant of the Chauda clan. Once again, so that is one interesting uh, fact that I can show you. And similarly, the Chautas of Southern India. Right, the Bunt community, the Shettis, the Chautas are also a descendant of a migrating group of the uh, migrating a bunch of families of the Chavda Khan from northern, uh, from Western India, from Gujarat. So yes, they are indeed connected to the Chavdas. They are the same, uh, same uh, extended family as the Chavdas. Isn't isn't that strange? Isn't it interesting? There is also this uh, Saurashtra community, 
in Tamil Nadu, I believe, which was a group of uh, artisans, etc., who migrated down south from Saurashtra in Gujarat to Tamil Nadu, settled down over there. And even today, they are called the Saurashtra people. They have their own language, which is classified as a Northern Indian, so-called Indo-Aryan language, right? So they are also migrants from Gujarat, from Saurashtra. So you have had multiple waves of migrations like this. People kept on migrating in India internally. And you had intermarriages and all. I mean, today the people, the Saurashtra people in Tamil Nadu, they are they look like Tamils, they speak like Tamils, they have their own language, but they can speak Tamil equally, equally fluently, and they have almost no connection left with uh, with Gujarat. Similarly, the the Shetty people, the Chautas, also may not remember what their origin is like, and yet their origin is in is in Western India in Gujarat. So it does mean that warrior communities and even non-warrior communities, artisans, etc migrated freely within india from place to place as long as they were able to as long as they provided value wherever they settled they were accepted with open arms right and that's how it was so you had this among the uh, in goa in in uh, tulunadu right where the where the uh, where Rani Abakka was the great queen and also in Tamil Nadu. There must be so many other examples that we have lost, that are lost in time. The thing is, the entirety of India is just one big gene pool. We are all the same people. Our genetics bear this out. That Whether you're from north, east, south, west, whatever part of India, you have the same genetics, more or less. There are lots of internal, uh, local diversities in genetics but overall it's the same gene pool from afghanistan to sri lanka it's the same gene pool from balochistan even from iran all the way to bangladesh it's the same gene pool so that's what it is we are all interconnected and this is a very interesting example that you have brought forth i'm glad somebody asked this question okay two questions by vishal mahajan are the Huns of the steppes and the Xionyu people of North China or East Euro- Eurasian steppe the same? And please talk about the Hunnic invasions of India in detail and the cultural and political impact they had on the Indian subcontinent. Are the Scythians, the Sakas, the same as the Huns? Or are they the ancestors or descendants of the Huns? So are the Huns of the steppes and the Xionyu people of this region, North China, the same. So, what is now North Northwest China, the so-called Xinjiang region of China, was never part of China. It is. It is. It was part of Central Asia. It has always been for centuries, for thousands of years, a place where Indian origin people lived. Then you had the Turkic invasions, who wiped out the native culture, and they are the descendants of the of today's Uyghurs. Now, who are the Huns? The Hunnic peoples are. The Xionyu, the, oh, the ancient Xionyu people who are attested in Chinese sources uh, about two and a half thousand years ago, roughly, roughly, give or take a couple of centuries here and there. Approximately two and a half thousand years ago, the Chinese spoke about this Xionyu people who are the Hunnic peoples. They are the ancestors of both the Turkic people and the Mongol people. So the Huns, the Shweta Hunas, the Heptalites who invaded India a, a century, a millennium and a half ago, in the 5th century AD, etc. These were the Huns, the white Huns. They were most likely descendants of the Shonyu. They were most likely related to the Huns who invaded Europe. Attila the Hun is a 
famous example. So most likely they were part of the same uh, ethnic group. Okay. Uh, so so the Huns of the steppe and the Shionyu people are the same. The Huns are the descendants of the Shionyu people. Right. Now the Hunnic invasion of India. Well, the question you've asked is a very will require a very detailed answer. I'm going to give you a briefer answer. So what was the impact? Cultural, political impact. Were the suckers the same as the Huns? No. The Sakas, the Scythians are a different people. They are an Indian origin people who ruled the entirety of Central Asia up to Eastern Europe. Uh, you could say that the Kushans were the easternmost branch of the of the Scythians. You could you, you could you could uh, classify them as that. So the Scythians, the Sakas, were Indian origin people. Their ancestors had migrated out of India thousands of years before today, and eventually they reinvaded India about two thousand years ago. So now about the Hunnic invasion of India, what was the impact? So uh, initially the Hunnic invasions began in the 5th century AD and there were multiple waves of, of invasions. India's emperors resisted. Uh, the Gupta dynasty, the Gupta empire was in, in full, was in power at the time. Emperor Skanda Gupta who lived in who was in power in the middle of the 5th century he swore to defeat the huns he said that i will not eat on a plate and i will not sleep on a bed as long as these people are trying to invade my country i will sleep on a bed and eat on a plate only after i defeat them until then i will sleep on the ground and i will eat from a from a leaf and he kept his word and he repulsed these invasions he was successful but but the huns the shweta hunas succeeded in conquering parts of northwestern India, present-day Afghanistan, Gandhar at that time. Uh, so you had kings like Kingila, Kingila I. He was known as Deva Shahi Kingila, the god king Kingila. He was in power in uh, in the 5th century, right? Uh, and uh, Mihirakula was in power in this region in the early 6th century. He is remembered as a strong anti-Buddhist king. Uh, the Buddhists were persecuted by him. The Brahmins were unhappy under him. The whole, all people, all his subjects were extremely unhappy against uh, under him. He was an atheist. He was not an Abrahamic. He was an atheist. So he persecuted Buddhists especially. And even the other people, Brahmins, etc. They were all unhappy under his rule. But later on, the Hunnic invasions succeeded. And... Uh, you had Hunnic kings who lived in India, who ruled in India. The Kabul Shahi, the, the Shahi dynasty in Afghanistan was a Hindu dynasty. These were Huns who came into India, who conquered that part of India, and they absorbed the Indian culture. They became Indianized completely. They be, became Dharmic people. So these were Hindu dynasties, and they actually opposed the Turks, the Turkic Islamic invasions of India. They fought vigorously to defend India from these Turkic invasions. And again, in other parts of India, northern India, you had kings like uh, various Hunnic kings. For instance, the great Indian astronomer, scientist, mathematician, Brahmagupta, the great Brahmagupta, his patron was the Hunnic king Vyagramukha of the Sri Chapa dynasty. He was most likely a first or second generation immigrant into India. And he was the patron of India's arts, sciences, and culture. So it tells you how quickly they absorbed Indian culture and how quickly they became Indian. So the number of Huns who came into India would have been very small, a few thousands, maybe 10,000, 20,000. 
maybe 30,000 at most. That is a drop in the ocean of the Indian gene pool. So today their descendants would be alive everywhere, but the they would have just a fraction, a tiny, a tiny fraction of Honic blood in them, Turk blood in them, less than a person, less than 0.1% most likely. So that is what I can say about the Honic invasions of India. Amjad says, why did Indians at the time accept and follow Gandhi? I guess essentially Indians are followers, not leaders. See, it's like this. When you are taught the wrong values, when you when your education system misleads you, it shapes you in a certain direction. It molds your psyche, your worldview according to what they want. So this is called social engineering. Right. So it's the truth is that Indians they have absorbed the wrong values from the education system. Indians, unfortunately today, the most, most of Indians today, most Indians today, they regard mediocre people as great. We have been taught, we have been programmed to regard mediocrity as greatness. We have been programmed to regard three feet tall people as giants. This is the conditioning that has been brought forth and the programming that has been brought forth by the Indian education system and it still continues. We don't know what is leadership. Recently, some lady on Twitter told me that the outcome of a battle is not like an IPL match. It doesn't matter who won or who lost. It matters who fought the best and who showed the greatest nobility. What utter nonsense. The outcome of a battle is one win or loss and nothing else matters. You may be noble, you may be brave, you may have a great personality, great character, but if you do not serve your people by winning the wars, you are a loser. So we have absorbed the wrong values from our colonial education system. The values that we need are there in our, in our civilization. Don't ask yourself, what would Gandhi do? Ask yourself, what would Kali do? And there's your answer. Ahinsa, Ahinsa is great. Ahinsa is Paramo Dharma. But destroying a Dharma is also Ahinsa. Destroying evil people is also Ahinsa. You are serving Dharma, serving Ahimsa, serving your people, whatever religion they are. If you destroy the, the evil that is befalling society, the evil invaders from elsewhere, barbarians, and so on and so forth. What happened to India in the past 1000 years? We all know. It's because our leaders forgot the real values. And today, we are programmed to regard people like Gandhi and Nehru and so on as great giants in stature and great epitomies, great and great examples of leadership. So, you know, it's not the fault of Indians. Indians have a great amount of greatness in them. All Indians, all religions, all regions, all parts of India. We are all the descendants of kings and queens and emperors. We all have that greatness in us, but we have forgotten, we have lost the art of discovering that greatness and putting it to use in the right direction. So yes, today you are right, Amjad, Indians are followers. There are very few leaders amongst us. But I think many of you, including you, Amjad, many others who are watching this channel, I sense it in you all. You are curious. You are hungry for the right, for the real information, for the truth. I think lots of leaders are going to come out from the people who are watching these videos. So I am very optimistic. 
for the future. Okay, Saikat says, if Yamnayas were well built, then why are today's Indians, why do today's Indians have an average body structure than that of a European? And are the Yamnayas people who wrote the sacred Vedas? Ask Abhijit. Right, good question. See, I would, yeah, today on average, the average Indian male is about 5'7, five, 5'8 five, tall. The average Indian lady is about 5'4, five, 5'5 five, five tall, I think. I'm not sure. I don't have the exact numbers. On average, today, Indians are shorter than Europeans, sure. But even today among Indians, you will find exceptionally large people, very tall people, very strong people. Indian athletes are second to none. Look at cricket. Who are, which country has the best fast bowling attack in the world today? It's India. Right. And uh, in other sports also, India is, we are beginning to see India doing well in sports. And you can see that Indians are second to none. Right. So why do Indians today have average body structure? Because of the past past two, three hundred years in which Indians were starved systematically, deliberately, year after year for three centuries by the British. More than a hundred million Indians died at the hands of the British because of these engineered famines. When you don't get enough to eat, you become smaller. The body has to compensate by expending less energy and keeping the size smaller. So it's because of that, these dietary practices of, of, of starvation of, of very little caloric intake that Indians became smaller. Now, imagine that your son spends his whole life riding a horse and going to battle and all he eats is meat and dairy and his son does the same thing. He spends his whole life on horseback and doing war and battle and eating only meat and dairy. And let's say this continues for five generations. Even if you're an average Indian, five generations down the line, your great, 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 great grandson is going to be six and a half feet tall, is going to be muscular, and is going to look nothing like you. It's all because of the lifestyle and the environment and the diet. The Yamnayas did not write the Rig Veda, the sacred Vedas. They were people who went out of India and lived in the Central Asian steppe and at some point in time they became these monstrous, violent mega conquerors who rampaged across Europe in a very short period of time because they were so brutal so 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 militaristic and they were the ultimate conquerors so that is the reason it's lifestyle diet lifestyle and diet and that's it What which, which causes um which shapes your body structure and all that, right? And also some part of genetics. Indians typically have good genetics. I think India has excellent genetics. You will find many people who are reasonably tall or, or, or even very tall. So it's all about lifestyle and, genet- and, and diet. And that's the answer for you, my, my friend, Shaikat. Okay, Sagar says, I am a diet consultant and health coach. I have been seeing that the West is trying to degrade our food culture by saying that our food habits and patterns are not healthy. A few years ago, they told us that ghee causes heart problems. Now they are saying it's healthy. And there's also a system in the gym culture that to build good muscle mass, you have to eat chicken and other false stories like that. Is it also part of promoting that the West is the best? What should we do about this? Yes, this is a pattern you see all the time. Recently, there was this, uh, about 10 years ago, there was this big coverage in, in all the, in the media 
that coconut oil is extremely bad for for your heart and all that right i remember there was there is this uh, sri lankan chef called peter kuruvita excellent chef great guy he had this program on on some tv channel my sri lanka with peter kuruvita or something in which he said that you know we all sri lankans cook with coconut oil but it's very bad for you so we'll i'll try and keep it uh, at a minimum that sort of thing it's not his fault he's a great guy but that's the kind of programming brainwashing that the media does and there is no evidence that it is the case people have been eating coconut oil consuming coconut oil in india for thousands and thousands of years and indians have are always very healthy people with more traditional diets are more healthy than people who eat the junk food diet of the 21st century so it's all lies they were also saying the same thing about ghee but now they they are calling it clarified butter now they are saying it's a good thing and similarly for other things as well they they yeah so that's how it is so they are trying to steal india's culture india's knowledge by rebranding it uh, recently uh, i don't know which outlet it was they called pranayam cardiac coherence breathing and they claim that cardiac coherence breathing has lots of health benefits but they omitted the word pranayam so they are trying to re- to steal indian culture and rebrand it in a western and and give it a western packaging wim hof in a, is another example wim hof is this so called ice man he is very famous for the wim hof method which has made him millions of dollars he has stolen pranayam from india bhastrika the bhastrika practice of pranayam which is the wim hof method and also uh, living in very cold environments uh, taking uh, ice cold showers and all that which is what indian yogis have been doing for thousands of years in the himalayas and he has also admitted on the joe rogan pod- podcast that he was in communication and contact with indian indian uh, practitioners of these things you know but he has tried to minimize the influence from india he essentially says it is something he came up Okay, he he came up with on his own so this is nothing but outright cultural theft they'll try to degrade everything that is that is indian in origin but then they will try to steal it and repackage and rebrand it so yeah that's what's happening in front of our eyes day in and day out and again gym culture to build good muscle mass you need to eat chicken or beef or or such things you don't you can eat soybeans if you you can eat a purely vegetarian diet and become massively bulked there is this armenian weightlifter armenian strongman contestant i forgot his name he's a massive guy he's pure vegetarian so you can eat soybeans you can eat various kinds of pulses dals etc you can eat dairy products if you are eating that milk and the paneer you can eat tofu which is again a soy product and so on and you have so many healthy options plant based options for uh for for your protein source so you can build excellent muscle mass in the gym without eating chicken without eating beef without eating meat right so these are false narratives indians need to rediscover their culture their past and that's what is required dongar singh chauhan says is telekinesis possible is it something that's within the logic of science or is it beyond so what is telekinesis telekinesis is the ability to control objects and move objects from far away without touching them so for instance i've got this these books behind me this this uh, thing here if i was able to do if i were able to do telekinesis if i had that power 
then i'd be ma- then i would be able to make this books fly off the shelves without touching them just with mind control so that is telekinesis some people claim to have this ability it does not fall within the realm of science there is no actual verifiable evidence of that right uh and there is no f- uh physical means by which you can control things with your mind i mean any such uh physical mechanism has never been discovered it doesn't mean it's not possible it may be possible we don't understand everything for sure there is so much that we don't know that our small intellect human intellect is not able to see uh, so maybe if you are from some other planet your intellect is 10 times greater than a human intellect then that, then according to that maybe you may be able to come up with science science that um may perhaps include telekinesis but for, as far as we know from the perspective of science hard science telekinesis is not possible in the future it will be possible when you have brain implants maybe you have a brain chip with a wifi connection you may be able to do all kinds of things just by thinking you may be able to open doors change the temperature of something start your tv uh, switch off the wifi start the wifi browse the internet all kinds of things with just thoughts so telekinesis will soon be possible because of uh, these implants that will be put into human brains i'm not saying it's a good thing but it is something that will most likely happen quite soon so that's called transhumanism and so on so forth so it will most likely be possible in the future vaibhav krupakar says sorry <laughs> sorry for asking this many times but i want it answered in this question yes sir i want it answered now 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 so in rakhigari they found a second skeleton belonging to the irula tribe which doesn't have the r1a1 a haplogroup and doesn't have r1a okay so my friends vaibhav uh, have you read the one paper the one research paper about the rakhigari genetic findings there's only one research paper only one it's available online i'm not opening opening it now but that research paper is available online and that is the re- that research paper is the source of all the media coverage so the rakhigari dna results are published in one single research paper in that research paper is the word irula mentioned anywhere my dear friend it's not right and this paper also clearly mentions that they were able to extract viable dna from only one single skeleton they tried extracting from multiple skeletons but only one sample worked so only one skeleton has had its genes sequenced its dna sequenced and that is unfortunately the skeleton of a lady so females do not carry y chromosomal haplogroups they don't carry y chromosomal dna right and that's why it can't have r1a it's just physically impossible i mean you can try you can try you can spend your life searching for that uh, y chromosomal dna in a female skeleton you won't find it right so this research paper makes no mention of irula i mean the irula irula tribe is i think some tribe in southern india i think do you think it's 5000 years old this tribe you think this tribe was in existence at that time come on this no it makes no sense from a logical perspective my my dear friend 
So I, I know that the media has been trying to spin the Iraqi Gari DNA results in all kinds of ways. Uh, there are certain uh, outfits, uh, media outlets like Wire, Squint, whatever it is. I don't know. I don't remember the names, <laughs> but they are trying to spin it in a way that kind of tries to support the Aryan invasion, uh, migration, tourism theory, picnic theory. But they are lying because there is no mention of Irula or a second skeleton at all in the research paper. So I hope this answers your question. Above and thank you for the question. Okay, Misa Amane says, Can you shed light on the Sabdapalon prophecy? Sabdapalon prophecy of Indonesia. So, Sabdapalon was um, the great priest and advisor of the last Hindu king of Indonesia, of the Majapahit Empire, Braj- Bravijaya V. So this guy, Sabdapalon, was the main advisor and the chief priest, the Hindu priest of the last king of the Majapahit Empire. And this guy, the king, Bravijaya V, he uh, converted to Islam. Okay, so that's what he did, I think, in the late 15th century, in the 1470s or 1480s. Okay, so this guy converted to Islam and... The, the great priest Sabdapalon said that uh, he cursed the king for, for converting to a foreign religion. And he said, he promised that five centuries down the line, five centuries from that time, he would return to Indonesia and he would make Indonesia a Dharmic empire, a Dharmic, Dharmic country again. Okay, so he said that he would bring back Shiva Buddha Gama to Indonesia, which is uh, the Indonesian native form of the Dharmic culture, which incorporates elements of Shaivite uh, practices as well as Buddhist practices. So, like I have said a million times before, Hinduism and Buddhism are the same thing. There is no difference, and the Indonesians practiced uh, elements of both, but it was called Hinduism in Indonesia. In Thailand, also you have elements of both, but it's called Buddhism. So there is no, you know, delineation. They both practice, the, both these cultures practiced a hybrid form which contained elements of Hinduism as well as, as well as Buddhism. So this guy, Sabdapalon, made a promise that I will come back in five centuries and I will re-establish the rule of Dharma in Indonesia. So 500 years from there, it's around this time now. So that's why people are talking about this prophecy. And recently, you will you will find that many Indonesians are reverting to the to the culture of their ancestors, to Hinduism. The daughter of uh, Sukarno, the former president of Indonesia, recently reconverted to Hinduism. And uh, there is uh, an underground movement also of many many people coming back to Hinduism. Many there are many high profile cases and others as well. So maybe the prophecy may be coming true. We don't know yet, but we will see. Okay, Mansi says, I am currently pursuing a BE in civil engineering. I'm from Kusrawadia. It's okay. Uh, the civil head of department says that civil engineers should not wait for here in Bharat. After our graduation is completed, we should just leave Bharat and settle elsewhere, say, saying there is no nothing here in India, in Bharat. Only if you're going to give MPSC or UPSC, then you should stay in India. Otherwise, there is no career for you. 
when he himself is settled in Bharat and quite respected here, when will this problem be solved? When the teachers themselves are motivating for us to go out of India, how will Bharat benefit if most of the hardworking intellectuals settle elsewhere, outside? I'm a temple lover since my March 2019 hampi trip. I want to do something about it. Please guide. Okay. Uh, this is a big conundrum. The truth is that there are not enough career opportunities as of today, 2021, in India. There are so many new kids who are coming out of, of school, college, university, new graduates, new degree holders. And India is, as of today, not able to provide all of them a job, a career, befitting the level of education that they have. This is undeniable. It is also true that India needs to expand significantly, vigorously, at a very rapid rate. The next 10 years, 20 years, India needs to grow at more than 10%. And for that, we will need the best talent that we have. But for that to happen, the government needs to reform everything. We need to have a significant upsurge in manufacturing and industries and investments into India and, and uh, industries and all that, which can absorb engineers. We need a lot more roadworks and civil works, which will need civil engineers. But as of today, December 2021, we don't we don't have enough jobs to fulfill, uh, to, to give everybody a career. So uh, I know that your HOD, etc. are being negative, but I would say that there is an element of truth to it. If you want a good career, at least for some time, maybe 5-10 years, you can go abroad, get experience, get new skills, acquire the latest skills, acquire acquire what's known as experience, acquire some wisdom, and maybe after 5-10 years, you can come back to India when you have more experience, more skills, more knowledge, and you may have a lot of money. At that time, maybe you can come back to India and instead of becoming an employee, you can start your own business, a startup or something. So the thing is this, see, when you are a complete newcomer, when you have nothing to your name, when you are 20, 25 years old, you have almost nothing in your bank bank account. At that stage in your life, you cannot really contribute much to the country. But after you reach a certain stage in your career, maybe you are a millionaire, maybe you are a billionaire, then you can really contribute something very significant to the country that you love. So I would say that there is a grain of truth in what your uh, HOD is saying. I know they are being negative, but there is a grain of tr- truth to it. Today, if you stay in India, you may not be able to get the career that you deserve as of today. So maybe I'm not in any way trying to discourage you. I'm sure you're a brilliant person. I want you to have the best possible career. If you want to strengthen the country, you have to first strengthen yourself. If you want to develop the country, first develop yourself. Invest the first 10, 20 years of your career in yourself, in developing yourself. And then you will be in the right place, in the right position to contribute significantly to the country. So that's the advice I give to everybody, especially new graduates, etc. Spend the first 10, 20 years of your adult life focusing on personal development and career growth. After that, dedicate the rest of your life to the country. Right. So maybe for some time you can go abroad and, and gain experience, career uh, career experience, skills, all that. And when you when the time is right, you can come back and contribute to the country in a significant manner. That's what I can say, Mansi. Good question. 
Subha says, Subha Rao says, in my opinion, PhD dissertations should be original research work. However, are most of the PhD dissertations in India really original and useful? In your opinion, what percentage of the PhD dissertations in the field of mathematics and science are really original? Is it the case that the government doesn't want to increase the budget in research because of poor quality of research outputs in most institutions of the country? Uh, the government is certainly not uh, developing the education system the way it should be. The education system needs lots of reforms. It should be research-oriented, not teaching-oriented. Teaching is an integral part, but there's no real research happening in India. So uh, it's not because there is poor quality. That's why they are not increasing the budget. It's because there is no reforms and the system is following the antiquated 19th century method. That's why there is so they, there is a research output of very poor quality. So I agree with you that the majority of PhD dissertations in India are really, really bad quality, very unoriginal, very poor quality. There is a website called, website called Shodh Ganga or something like that on which you are mandated to upload your PhD dissertation, PhD thesis. So you can go there and you can see the quality of the PhD dissertations, PhD thesis, whether it's in the sciences, the humanities, most of them look like they have been written by children, very unoriginal, very poor quality. There is, I have heard a lot of complaints of plagiarism and so on. The system is rotten to the core. Most of the academicians are, are, are what's the polite word for it? They are incompetent. Most of your so-called professors in even the best so-called institutes of the country are incompetent. They are incapable of communicating their knowledge to anybody. They're incapable of inspiring the kids, inspiring students. They are incapable of doing any original research. And that's why we are in the shape that we are in. Essentially, when you become a, a professor or a lecturer or a reader, you have a job for life. It's just the same system as the Indian bureaucracy. So all this needs to be reformed and only then India will grow the way it should grow. Chinmay says, is having less population a boon or a curse? Imagine you have a certain amount of land and you have too many people on, the, on that piece of land. Will there not be an enormous amount of competition for all the resources, for the food, for the land, for, for every other thing, for water, for jobs? Will there not be enormously long lines for everything? That is terrible. That's terrible. So overpopulation is terrible. Less population is good. But if you if the population drops below a certain level, it becomes very less and that is also not good. So uh, typically India had uh, a population of about 300 million citizens in undivided India, which comprised Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, about 300 million. So that is a sustainable a number of people. That's how India typically was. India, so so today it is like four times that. That's why India is so overcrowded. This, so many of India's problems stem from this ridiculous population increase that happened during the Nehruvian years and the Congress years. Today we are dealing with that. Uh, it is not a demographic dividend. It's a demographic disaster, potential demographic disaster, unless we adopt the right policies and take the right steps and the right measures. So less population is better as long as it is a sustainable population. All right. So that brings me to an end of all the questions today. It is already almost two hours. So I will not take any live comment questions. But thank you so much. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart for 
for your viewership, for the thousands of questions you ask me every week. Like I said at the, at the beginning, it is a privilege if somebody gives you even five seconds of attention. You are giving me hours, hundreds, thousands of hours of attention. Thank you so much. I am enormously grateful. I am really privileged. It is a privilege and honor for me. And I'm going to continue doing this. So I will see you tomorrow in the live chat session. I will take questions from your live chat questions. Until then, thank you again. And I will see you tomorrow. Bye.